is fine. Episode 2.2. The world only spins forward. Hi, this is Jeremy. And this is Jerry. Uh, And today we're joined by Isaac Butler, one of the authors of The World Only Spins Forward, The Ascent of Angels in America. Isaac, do you want to intro yourself? Uh, sure. My name's uh, Isaac, as they've, as they've just said. I'm a writer and a theater director and uh, just put out my first book. So I thought what we do today is obviously we want to talk about uh, the book to some extent and the relevance that Angels in America still has in today's political moment. But given that um, it's been a little while since our last podcast, I, I thought we'd catch up. Jerry, how confident are, are you still feeling about our Miller's investigation turns up basically nothing, or or doesn't turn up nothing, but leads to basically nothing. Right, right. So I think I think we never said that it was turning up nothing. It was just oh. like we we were trying to forecast the consequences. Um, I you know I don't know. Like I guess I'm still, I don't know if I would say confident, but I still it still seems like there's like all this activity right going on around you know figures that are relatively close to Trump and, uh, the like it's I think it's fairly evident that pretty much everybody in that circle has been involved in like some kind of uh, illegal activity, let's put it that way. Um, is it enough to like, you know, bring down the president? Uh, I think that, again, you know, I, I think we've been pretty consistent in saying that impeachment is a political action. It's not a legal action. I mean, there's no such thing as like, you have to impeach the president. And it just, it just, it, it all comes down to like, you know, do like, are Republicans going to throw him out? Like, are they going to consent to do that? And my feeling is like, continues to be no. Like, I haven't seen any evidence that suggests that, you know, like a majority of the House plus two thirds of the Senate is going to vote for this. And like, I, I guess, I guess maybe, you know, if I, if like people start, if, if you start hearing prominent Republican senators saying that like, they're like, taking this seriously, then that would be, that would certainly be evidence against my, um, you know, against that position, but I haven't heard that. So I guess the question would be, you know, I'm on record as saying, I think there's an 80% chance that uh, Donald Trump Jr. and Kushner will not be indicted. Uh, But say I'm wrong, say that they are indicted, um, which frankly, the last week is making that prediction look a little worse. Do you think an indictment and a pardon of his son and son-in-law would be enough to push Republicans over that line? Uh, no, but I mean, the pardon thing is weird, right? Because you can only get pardoned for federal crimes and a pardon is also an admission of guilt. So like the, like Kushner's situation, I think at least as in so far as I understand it, I'm like not a lawyer, so this is not legal advice, but, uh, you know, as, as at least so far as I understand it, he, you know, there are probably laws that he broke that are, for example, like related, you know, state, laws in new york in new york and new jersey and if he says like sure and, yeah, and like, trump can't pardon him from that right? yeah right and and so and so he's so if I, I guess what i'm saying is that like he's caught in a bad situation probably because if he you know if he admits anything that he can be pardoned for at the federal level he could also be admitting to things that are like state crimes but it's also but it's like yeah you know they'll just like i Kushner is like, you know, to the extent that he matters to anybody, he only matters to like, you know, Trump and Ivanka. He doesn't matter to Republicans. Like Republicans have no loyalty to him. Like, why should they, why should they care? Right? Like he, okay, he pardons Kushner. Like they're going to like make their, make faces at about it. Like Jeff Flake did. And then they'll just do nothing. Like, I, I don't know. I, I just don't see like where the impetus is coming from, I guess. That's, well, that's my feeling. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sort of with Jerry that I think absent you know, a uh, uh, a wake up call wave election midterm in the 2018 that causes the Republicans to sort of question everything about how they've been operating. I don't see how you get two thirds of, of a Senate, uh, even if the majority of that Senate is Democrat Democrats. I don't see how you get two thirds of that Senate to vote to convict on anything. I think the interesting news over the last week, you and I were talking about this the other day, Jeremy, is that it's very clear that Mueller's probe has widened to sort of just include generalized wrongdoing. And once you're in that territory, you know, you're talking about laundering money through real estate. You're talking about committing fraud. You're talking about how over leveraged Kushner is on the aptly titled 666 building. And, you know, then then you start heading towards this sort of danger zone that gets us into state crimes as well. I, I continue to believe that this ends up 
uh, I think this is how you talk about it, um, Jared, that this ends up as uh, in the Iran-Contra zone, right? Where some people go to jail, the president does not, you know, never actually gets to the president. And then 30 years from then, they have a television show and run for Senate in Virginia. Right. I mean, I think that, well, it'll probably be a, a Netflix, just, you know, Netflix-only show at that point. We're beamed directly into our cortexes via, via our Cybertron implants. Right. The, the neural lace. The Elon Musk lace, yeah. No, I, I think that's right. Um, so two things. The cooperation with the state's attorney general and Mueller's kind of going Ken Starr in terms of the investigation moving broadly. I, I agree, sort of both point to the subsidiary indictments. Um, it, it is a it is a real question to me of whether if the popularity blows below some number, you know, if it if if it were to go below that thirty eight percent sort of uh, you know Trump base, whether whether there would be something. But maybe this is all right. Like even if Ted Cruz loses to Beto Rourke in Texas. Dems are at most going to have like 54 seats in the Senate. Right. So the question becomes, how do you convince the other, you know, 10 to 15 senators or whatever that they should sign on for it or show that there's enough momentum moving in that direction that the president resigns? And I just can't imagine either of those scenarios actually happening. I mean, I think, you know, the focus continues to have to be win in 2018 win in 2020, right? And it's like, if we're not focusing on that, the focus is in the wrong place. Now, I should say, I find the Mueller investigation incredibly entertaining. And I think it's something that, you know, if you're a political junkie, you want to follow the same way you want to, you know, follow any other issue that you care about. I just think that it's not going to wind up being a solution to our problems, Um, in part because the Trump brand is built on a nihilism about politics and virtue. Um, it's, It's built on this idea that, Everyone is acting like this. That's part of the the way it is framed. I think it's very hard to come up with a list of facts that causes a Trump voter to get demoralized. Right, to say, oh, my guy's really worse. But, yeah. but I don't even think that it's necessarily like the Trump brand because what I mean, what like what I think that the like the enduring lesson of the 2016 election is, is that like. This is just like what Republicans want, right? Like, and you saw this with evangelicals who just like raised shit over, you know, the tiniest indiscretions. Barack Obama had a barbecue with hip hop artists. Right. I mean, it's just like complete. Are you like he wore a tan suit? Like mustard? Wasn't there a scandal about him eating? It was just. It's like the most like banal bullshit, right? And they were they were like, oh my god, like Barack Obama hates America because he like put the wrong thing on his sandwich or something. And then it's like. But, but like, when you look at their reaction to Trump, like, what you can see is that it's completely opportunistic, right? Like, they just, they're willing to tolerate it because he's going to take them, they think, to where they want to go. And that, that's all that matters, right? Like, that's, uh, the opportunism is, like, everything. And uh, as long as that holds up, that there's, there's, like, no, why would they change? Can I say the other thing that I think has happened maybe in between your last episode and now that's that that to me is very interesting is we have two incidents where Trump is sort of gone against Republican orthodoxy on something and then had to have been corrected by the institutions around him. The first example is, you know, our our unelected and unconfirmed chief of staff picking up the phone and calling Chuck Schumer to derail a pending immigration deal because, you know, he suddenly claims that Trump has changed his mind. We have no, no, well, he'd have to have a mind to change in the first part, but, you know, we have no evidence that's the case. And the second one, of course, is, you know, Trump starting to go against Republican orthodoxy on guns and saying, oh, you guys are all too scared of the NRA. And then suddenly he has these like very productive breakfasts with the NRA and is now against gun control. I I actually think there's even a third example. I mean, I think the trade war, it's very interesting because, you know, they'd invited the guests who were steel executives to the White House. The way that the White House was going to try and stall this out, the chief of staff and others, but they hadn't even processed the security clearances for them so that they technically couldn't come which is a great sort of White House, like keep, keep them away from the boss. Trump goes ahead and does it anyway, announces the, these tariffs. I strongly doubt, especially with the market reaction, Republican orthodoxy on trade and the way everyone else in the administration feels, that this will go any further. Like, I think that they will walk this back just like they walk back gun control, just like they walk back any immigration deal. Yeah, I mean, I think that like w- the other thing that this demonstrates is that like it's not like Trump is not like... Uh, ideologically driven in kind of the standard Republican fashion. Like he just has like 
like things will bubble up to the top of his brain and he'll just say them and then uh the whole like idea that this is like a person that you could control and keep you know make him do the things you want to do it's like all of a sudden endangered right and so then the entire republican establishment has to gather around him and like you know talk him down from like whatever the hell it is that he just said but he doesn't say them because he like has like strong like convictions about it it's just like like shit that happens like he just opens his mouth it like comes out yeah and but the weird and the weird thing about that is that you know i agree with you trump opens his mouth shit comes out but then there's two different versions of that right one version of that is he says sort of something the republicans can't go along with and they crush it you know i don't know how they do it but they figure out some way to bottle that up so that 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 no longer becomes a real thing but then he also will just start musing off the cuff and suddenly being like maybe 15% of all teachers should get special gun training and have concealed carry permits. And the next thing you know, they're drafting a bill for it in the Republican state legislature. So, so there's a weird thing where like his pronouncements. Well, when his id is in, is in, uh, you know, congruence with the Republican party id, they're perfectly willing to go for it when it's not, or when it frightens stability. I mean, look, HR McMaster is probably the smartest person uh, in the Trump foreign policy orbit. He fired a lot of the crazy, uh, fascist and Muslim xenophobes, but H.R. McMaster was seriously drafting military plans for North Korea, which is terrifying. And so Mattis and Kelly want to take him out because they're like, one thing we don't want to put in front of Trump is any serious military option in North Korea. And you know what? Mattis and Kelly are bad people in some meta sense, but on this one, preventing the world from nuclear apocalypse, it's good because, you know, the problem with Trump is, yes, when the when the id fits with Republicans, it goes. When it doesn't fit with Republicans, you can write it back. But on foreign policy, he's got a lot more power than on domestic policy, and it's really hard to walk stuff back. And so I think that they're very much trying to keep him constrained. The, the place where you really obviously run into trouble is when, like, he gives something that could be interpreted as a direct order, right? And, like, the military has to carry that out. and uh, Unless it's an illegal order. Unless it's an illegal order. But, you know, I, I think that my conversation, at least our conversation with Alex right. uh, a, 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 a while ago, convinced me that, like, you know, it's hard to know what like counts as an illegal order and you'd be hard pressed to find people who would, you know, readily uh, countermand uh, like a direct presidential order. So that's the real danger is like, he just like, he's, it's not just that he says something, but he, that he says something that is like official, right? He make gives an official military order and then like all bets are off. Well, I think it's actually incredibly dangerous for American democracy because I do think that if you were to order a nuclear attack on North Korea, one of two things would happen. We would have nuclear war for the first time in 80 years, which would be an unbelievable, horrible tragedy. Or the better outcome, but still quite terrible, and I think possibly likely, is that there would be a non-official coup of sorts in that, like, I, I, I think people in the administration would try and stop that order from going on and then maybe try and, like, 25th Amendment. Like, that's the only time I actually see Republicans doing a 25th Amendment yeah. would be Trump giving an unadvised nuclear order. And that has really bad consequences for our democracy. Like, it's not a good way of removing a president. This is why I'm firmly in favor of the abolition of the executive branch. Like, I mean, it's just, it's just kind of, no, but it's how many, how many parts of our government do you want to defund or abolish? Cause you know, we're, we're, we're good friends and Facebook friends. And I feel like I often see you saying, this is why we should eliminate the Senate. You want to eliminate the Senate. I I do want to eliminate the Senate. You want to eliminate the executive branch. I want to eliminate, I want to eliminate the presidency. I don't, I guess the executive branch in, in the sense of like, uh, agencies that carry out like the you know the legislated like goals of the government like that's fine but uh but i think the presidency is a really awful institution like it's just because you vest all this power into in a single individual you don't know um like any you know and a single individual and that person's group of advisors right and so you kind of hope that like yeah um you know some notion of stability and some notion of responsibility like will will carry them into like doing like the approximately right thing but as we've seen like that's just not like a reliable uh reliable thing to that's not something you can rely on so do you think a prime minister in a parliamentary system really is substantially weaker well the prime minister kind of like right so prime ministers especially like in right in the like a westminster system have this problem where they, like if they can't get their agenda passed right that that's like a no confidence vote and then your government is dissolved so that's like that's kind of a check um and you know we could we could you know talk in other times about like what would be a more 
sensible uh, configuration. I, I'm not saying that we should like become Westminsterian, whatever uh, government like wholesale, but I think that the presidency, like particularly, is is a very dangerous uh, institution. Like, I really think we need to institute a House of Lords just so that we have somewhere where like the safety of the lids on tinned soup. And things like that are, are openly debated. Because if you look at the list of things that are openly debated at the House of Lords, they're like the most delightfully irrelevant things. And like, that's what you want. You want like, you know, the chinless, wealthy, inbred part of our society debating things like tin soups. If we could convert the Senate to a House of Lords with be all for practical that. power, I think Jerry would be for it. So maybe that's actually a good way because obviously uh, Angels in America spends a large part of its time... <laughs> Uh, in that cut six act of Perestroika in the British House of Lords. <laughs> but to, to segue to the book. So, um, you know, as Jerry noted, maybe, maybe we should just start off asking about uh, the, the basic principles of how the, it came to be composed. Well, so I actually didn't know anything about the book until I started reading it. And then I, like, I was like, oh, this is, where have I seen this before? And it like reminded me not, not to like draw the most facile comparison possible, but it reminded me of like, you know, the, like the Grantland oral histories mm-hmm. that, you know, uh, ex- of, of like things that were not quite as momentous as, uh, as AIDS. Uh, but, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, like I guess, and sort of just off the bat, I would be interested in hearing like, what, what was it that motivated you to like structure the book in that way? It actually started first as kind of one of those articles for, not for Grantland, but for uh, Slate.com. And um, Dan Kois, the co-author of the book, uh, is an editor at Slate. And he had the idea that, you know, we should do something to mark the 25th anniversary of the play's premiere. Did not actually premiere on Broadway. It premiered at a theater that no longer exists in part because of this play called the, The Eureka in San Francisco. And um, so he had that idea and then he very quickly saw how big a project it was probably going to be when he just started listing names of people he might want to talk to. And so he emailed me and, you know, he was like, I have this crazy idea. Give me a phone call. And then I signed on very quickly. And then, um, you know, we had maybe one conversation about its form. It was like, so oral history, right? Yes. You know, like and then and then we were kind of off to the races. Um, we felt like the oral history form was the best way to tell this story for a, a few reasons. The first is, you know, we have like really great talkers. These are actors, uh, brilliant writers, great theater directors. You know, these are people who have a lot to say and say it very well. And we felt like we could just kind of get out of the conversation's way and structure it so that that conversation is happening. And it would be a lot more delightful than if we were sort of summarizing a lot of it or narrating a lot of it. And um, Dan and I are both big fans of like Errol Morris's movies, for example. And so, you know, we thought about the thin blue line a lot where, you know, um, Errol doesn't appear until the very, very end of that movie. He never appears in person. You just hear his disembodied voice at the very, very end. And that it's just these sort of testimonies and evidence kind of cut together. And we wanted it to really feel like that. Um, Oral histories work well when the subject matter is worthy of it, uh, when there is actually conflict within the story, um, and when you have kind of exciting people talking. And since we had all of those things, you know, we just felt like this structure would work best. Was it easy to do the intercutting? Because, I mean, I think one of the things for, for readers of the book that's interesting is you get, um, at times, Rashomon-like looks at various different incidents in the play. And also you get, very interestingly, and often to humorous effect, very contradictory takes um, sort of laid on top of each other. And so was that in in terms of the editing process, pulling those pieces out, uh, was that very natural or? Uh, Yeah, I mean, look, doing this book was a lot of work, but it was also deeply pleasurable. Um, And part of it was that the story seemed to kind of dictate its own terms sometimes. Like if you have multiple accounts that are in conflict with each other like of course that's going to be a story beat in your chapter because conflict is the essence of drama and that's part of what makes it compelling right and um sometimes those conflicts are about uh meaning you know like there's a chapter on um the character of lewis in the play and he has this speech where called democracy in america where he's talking about you know democracy and there there's a debate between the actors who play lewis about whether or not lewis is is wrong is he incorrect about what he's saying for example and sometimes those debates are about actual you know plot incidents but you know whenever you find conflict you're going to be drawn to that the hardest thing in each chapter 
was just figuring out where it begins. Like who gets to say the first thing in the chapter. And once you could just like choose something, the rest of it felt very organic. Um, as long as, you know, you were sort of keeping all the various accounts in your head, you know, it, it would just kind of dictate itself to you in a really weird kind of ephemeral way. So, I mean, a thing that we talked about before we opened the pod that I'm curious about is, you know, the book and to some extent the play, and as we all know, uh, you know, now Nathan Lane has quoted you on national television, <laughs> uh, is that the play is about change and the necessity of change. And yet one of the ironies is that the most current production uh, and, and some of the moments in this book are, are very resonant because of the reappearance, like a horrible epicycle, of some of the same figures of uh, the reactionary uh, spirit in American history. Sure. So, how, you know, I, how does that operate for you? Do, you? do you feel like that, oh, great, the play is more relevant now because of this, or, oh, actually, the promise of this play is in some way, um, you know, uh, less sharp uh, because we're, we're back again with a protege of Roy Cohn's, I mean, ironically, as president? Yeah, well, we can talk about the Roy, we, we should talk about the Roy Cohn thing at, at, at some point. I think that what you have hit on is the key dialectic of the book, right? Because we started writing the book when Trump was a joke, and about halfway through our process of reporting this story, he was elected president. And that radically changed every conversation we had with everyone, right? So I do think that that becomes the central tension of the book, both that progress or, or change is, is this inevitable um, and necessary thing that human beings, it's in the play, change is the essence of human life. And to stop change is to actually kind of stop being human. Um, so, you know, there is that aspect of it. And then at the same time, you know, there is this idea that the world has spun forward, but the world is also circular. And here we are again. But, you know, it is worth saying how much has changed for the specific issues that this play is uh, addressing, right? I mean, the play is addressing all sorts of things about the nature of democracy. But, you know, on at least its basic level, it is about gay citizenship and the AIDS crisis. And both of those have been completely transformed over the course of the last 25 years. They haven't been fixed. I mean, I lost a friend to AIDS last year. There are many, many states in which you can still legally discriminate against uh, the gay people, you know, or, or um, uh, and transgender rights are obviously, you know, somewhere where there's, there's, there's a lot of work to be done. So it's not that, that all this stuff has been solved, but there has been a lot of progress on those fronts. So, I mean, I just think that at the same time, you know, we do have this thing where this is a play that one of the main characters is Roy Cohn and literally Roy Cohn's protege is our current president of the United States. So there's a weird way in which Roy Cohn, who is insistent till the moment he dies that he's never lost, right? In some ways, he's right. He still hasn't lost because his strain of, you know, right wing America is ascendant right now. There's an amazing um, panel from the uh, AIDS quilt, yeah. which um, was in some ways, uh, I think I think Kushner says about it, if, right, if I could write a character uh, with that dialectic, right? That... Yeah, so, so pretty early on, you know, um, Kushner knew that he wanted this play to be about AIDS, Mormons, and Roy Cohn. And he wasn't quite sure what those impulses were. And in many ways, the process of writing the play was figuring out what the connections between those things were. And um, some of it came out of that, you know, Kushner felt like the fact that Roy Cohn had died of AIDS made him in some ways part of the larger gay community, even though the larger gay community did not want him, right? And, and he didn't want it. And he didn't want it. And that the treatment of Cohn after his death, particularly in this sort of very famous um, obit in The Nation by Robert Sherrill, uh, was incredibly homophobic. And so he had a really you know complicated response to that, which is why I think Cohn is such a complicated character. And very early on, the um, AIDS quilt was displayed in San Francisco while they were developing the play, and they come across this panel. And actually, we have a photo of the panel in the book that... Um, Tony Kushner took. It's his photograph. And it says, Roy Cohn, bully, coward, victim. And according to Oscar Eustace, who developed the play, you know, with Kushner and was there at the time, uh, Tony looked at it and said, if I can write something half as dialectical as that, it'll be a great character. 
It's a great uh, excerpt. <laughs> and so, I, I mean, I think a real question about that that I'll, I'll put forth is, do you think it's possible Donald Trump, bully, coward, can someone find that third victim? <laughs> can someone write, could, you know, Roy Cohn is an amazing character. I, he's larger than life, even in a play that's lar- that is uh, not at all about um, a sort of real manner take on reality. And, and yet he is so unbelievably, um, one of the gifts of the play is that it makes you incredibly uh, sympathetic for, for this figure. I mean, Roy Cohn's death um, is, um, and the cottage said for him, uh, are, are amazing and, and unbelievable and powerful. And you feel a type of sympathy for Roy Cohn as victim. And so that's what a great work of art can do. It will be interesting to me, because Trump is a complicated character as well. Certainly a bully, certainly a coward. Like, can someone unlock Trump's victim, victimhood and make him sympathetic in the same way that someone has unlocked, you know, Roy Cohn's? Well, my, I, I would say no, but, you know, <laughs> part, part of it is that, you know, Trump is the crasser knockoff of Roy Cohn, right? You know, he he learned the tactics from Roy Cohn, always hit back 10 times as hard, lie whenever you have to, declare victory whether you've won or not. You know, he learned all that stuff at the at the feet of Cohn, but his version of it is, you know, crass and stupid, whereas Roy Cohn was kind of like a wily genius. And also the, the, the second issue is that, you know, Trump doesn't belong to any oppressed class of people, which is where some of the like victimhood comes from. I'm sure Trump sees himself as a victim. I think just about everyone sees themselves as a victim. Uh, but I, I doubt that we will have a work of art that will, that will be able to create complexity out of uh, Donald Trump unless it's taking him when he's like a seven-year-old or something i I think i think that you know since we uh did a bit about uh iran contra in the past i mean it's sort of this is another since iran contra is actually happening like right around the time when angels in america comes out uh the scandal breaks in 86 i think right but the the play the pardons aren't until 92 which is right when the play the play the play comes out in 80 no the play is being put together in 85 Uh, it's the real writing period begins in 88 um, the idea of the play happens in the mid-80s, but there's actually, um, in the original draft of Perestroika, which I've, I've read but do not have a copy of, if I recall correctly, you know, Roy Cohn has this very long monologue where he talks about how much he knows about the Iran-Contra deal, and that's how he gets the into the AZT study. Um, uh, and there's some references, there's sort of remnants of that within the play in its current form. But there used to be a much longer scene where he talks about but, that. But the reason I was bringing this back around was because, uh, you know, I can't think of any work of art that, for example, like paints a particularly psychologically complex portrait of Reagan, right. for example. Whereas for whereas Nixon, right? Like Nixon is an interesting figure, right? Reagan was not an interesting figure in and of himself. And I don't know of any art that like paints him in any psychological detail. So to me, like that's the answer about Trump. Like there's like we already have the example and it just doesn't seem to have panned out. I'm not sure that it would pan out with Trump either. I guess it's a shame because I mean maybe I'm just too much of a sucker for the history plays, but you know, there's nothing about being uh, a king and having risen to the top that, that necessarily takes away your humanity or playwright from expressing the, the humanity of that person. Um, although, yes, you're, you're right. I haven't seen a work of art that, that has done so with Reagan. I mean, I would probably have to touch on Reagan and Alzheimer's, which maybe is its own sort of touching. Well, subject. we might have to touch on Trump and Alzheimer's too, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Everything old is new again. Right? Yeah, exactly. Ah, God, Trump will just, unfortunately, uh, probably outlive us all. Uh, Just be a a head, like in Futurama. Right. In a a jar. In a jar, firing people. Or not firing people. Not firing people. people. Because Trump is terrified of firing people. Is there a a moment in the book, so you you know, you were, I presume, pretty familiar with the play, obviously, before starting (laughs) off on this. But is there a moment in the book that reflects your own, even as a narrator in the background, surprise or that was the most surprising to you I mean there's a lot that's surprising to me about um, the play I mean there's a lot of just I think really uh, entertaining episodes from the play's history wound up in here that that we of course didn't know about Um, you know there's a 
section of it where um, Tony Kushner's just seen a run through of the play at the National Theater and he's very unhappy with the run through at the National Theater and he takes a flight back to the United States. This is um, from the when it had its um, first production of the National in the early 90s. He takes a flight back to the United States and he types up his notes on that flight on like a little word processing machine because it's 1992 and, or 90, and he... Um, prints all of them out and he faxes them to the director's uh, office. But the director's office, the director Declan Donnellan, uh, his office, it's a home office and it's the old days when the fax machine were just like a, you know, continuous kind of scroll deal. And so, you know, these 50 pages of notes or however much come out of the fax machine and when he, uh, Declan and his partner, Nick, who's the designer for the show, get home, they actually think they've been burgled. Right, but it's just because there's just paper everywhere. But it turns out those papers are Tony Kushner's notes on their their run through of Angels in America. So you know, like there's a lot of stuff like that that's just like you're just like I just sort of can't believe this happened. Um, the one that I was, of course, probably the most moved by or that affected me the most was that the woman for whom the angel was written, the part of the angel was originally written for an actor named Sigrid Wershman. Uh, and she died over the course of the play being written. Um, she died actually, you know, uh, pretty early in its development and was replaced by her best friend, Ellen McLaughlin, who went on to do the role in every subsequent production up through um, Broadway and was sort of the patron saint of our, one of the patron saints of our book. And um, that was sort of an amazing story to, to find out about this woman in her early 30s who died of breast cancer, who was sort of the linchpin of this theatrical community. And the angel was written to kind of reflect how angelic she herself was. And, you know, there's traces of her throughout the play. Part of the play is dedicated to her, you know, unearthing. The amazing bit about the angel being called the bald eagle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the angel refers to herself at one point as the bald eagle. And the reason why she does that is that Sigrid was going through chemo and had lost her hair. And then there's also another section. uh, Oh, and she was wearing these oversized glasses because her breast cancer had moved to her eyes and she was having trouble seeing. And so like that image kind of became very important to the writing of the play and the conception of the angel. Um, The thing that we were struck by again and again and again is how contingent this whole enterprise was right it's like we look back at it now and we're like well yes of course this is you know the greatest work of american art since the cold war or whatever that's that's how i view it but you know you you look at it and you know at every step along the way you know it was originally supposed to be a 90 minute chamber musical you know for five men or whatever you know whatever but it had to be um but it was created for a company that had three women that they had to write roles for, you know, or like, you know, Kushner could have not gotten that NEA grant that funded it. And if he had not gotten that grant, the play never would have been written. There was a coworker who loaned him money to help him finish the play. That never happened. The play never got written. If, if Richard Eyre hadn't happened to read a copy of the script, it would never have happened at the national, you know, like, so every step along the way, the play was this close, you know, inches away from total disaster and never happening. Um, and that to me is, is part of what's really exciting about its story. It's like World War One in reverse. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. 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 Uh, yeah, so I, what's the Schlieffen plan in, in this in this in, in the Angels in America story? The, uh, the the actually the question that I had sort of um for you, you know, because your your book is trying to grasp kind of like um the the play in like a large context, right? Correct. I mean, that's that that that's sort of the the aim I I took from uh, what you were doing, and I guess my question to you was sort of like, what do you think Angels in America changed, like when it came out? Like, what was what was possible after this play appeared that was not possible before? Sure, um, I think that you know Tony Kushner talks about the play as having caught a wave that there was a wave going on in cultural change and the play came at the right moment and it was sort of lifted up by that wave and you know kind of went onto the beach uh oscar eustace who again was you know around for you know directed early productions of the play helped commission it dramaturged it etc etc it called it the tip of the spear right so he sees it as playing maybe even a more active role than, than kushner does i think that this play um absolutely change the possibility for how um, gay characters could be depicted and the complexity with which they could be uh, depicted. This is a play whose every man protagonist is an effeminate gay man with AIDS, right? Like that is a really radical thing. And at the end of the play, he's still alive. 
It doesn't end like, um, I, I don't mean this to knock the normal heart, which is a totally brilliant play that also had a significant cultural impact. But, you know, at the end of the normal heart, you know, the, the character with AIDS is, is dying and dead. And there's a deathbed marriage and all this other stuff. Or, you know, the end of Philadelphia, right? Um, Tom Hanks, is, which comes out the same year or, or around the same time. So I'm just saying that is a really radical thing. And I think um, it really did have an impact in changing the way that homosexuality and AIDS were thought about in this country and the way they were talked about, particularly in the press, um, because this play, like Hamilton, became the kind of theatrical wonder that people are reading about in the New York Times and talking about and everything like that. And I think that sort of larger conversation that it helped engender um, uh, really did have a significant impact. Now, the play did not invent the triple cocktails, you know, that which are the drugs that made um, uh, AIDS for the, for the portion of the population for whom they work and who could get access to them that made it a treatable chronic illness instead of a, you know, a not really treatable fatal one. Um, and, you know, so, and the play did not create act up or, you know, anything like that. Like I, 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 I want to be very cautious and say that, that transforming the, the AIDS crisis and transforming the, the situation faced by particularly gay men in, in, in America, um, this play didn't single-handedly do anything. Do you know what I mean? But it was right. part of this larger thing, and I think it had a really serious impact. And that the other important thing is that it's worth keeping in mind, you know, David, David um, Trance, who directed How to Survive a Plague and wrote the book, you know, by the early 90s, everyone who was in the AIDS activism movement was really tapped out. There was, you know, they were really tapped out. People, their friends had been dying. Um, AZT was not a wonder drug. Um, in fact, there was eventually a study in the mid-90s that showed that it actually had no impact on lifespan at all. Um, and, um, you know, we're at the point in that movement where people are doing the political funerals, you know, where it's like it's getting really, really desperate. And so to I think there is there are some uh, AIDS activists who do not like this play, you know, but I do think that having a play that came from a perspective of hard-won hope you know, of, of sort of gritty optimism that, that change for the better was actually possible. That was a really important thing for a lot of people to hear at a moment when they were feeling their most demoralized and despairing. And that, to me, is the way that it directly ties into what is going on now. That it is not, that there's, that it is a play that does not end on a note of fatalism and despair. It, it, the play and Kushner have a deep belief in hope as a necessary political uh, force not a kind of chintzy bs hope but like a real you know like it comes from uh, uh the marxist philosopher yeah, thomas hope. block you know that, that 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 it's his idea of hope you know it's that hope it, without hope uh how can you work towards anything how can you organize if you're not hopeful about a possible change yeah, i mean it is interesting you, you mentioned block like kushner is deeply invested in a type of um, Marxist Hegelian synthesis, right? Totally. And, like, the play pushes forward on that. The sort of coda de perestroika is, is written in that mode. There's also a section of uh, one of the acts of the play is called Not Yet Conscious Forward Dawning, which is a reference directly to Bloch because Bloch reframes the subconscious as the not yet conscious. Right. And, and I think, I mean, it's interesting, too, the way in which the angels themselves are shifted, right? They start out as this inhuman, alien, I, 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 sort of cultivating a um, sterile garden that God has left yep. and being angry at humanity. And then by being wrestled with uh, by this this very unique character, uh, they, they change themselves too. Well, they do to some extent in that they do... Uh, you know, in that prior wins that argument, right? And they do bless him with more life and they do um, remove the book from him and everything. You know, they accept his rejection of being a prophet for them. Um, for people who have not read the play, that what I just said probably makes absolutely no sense. So we should say, the main character of this play is named Prior Walter and he is a, a young gay man who um, uh, has AIDS and he has a... Um, opportunistic infection but at the very beginning of the play he has Carposi sarcoma and um, eventually he is visited by an angel and the angel um, 
comes to him on sort of behalf of the angels because heaven has been abandoned. God has abandoned uh, uh, heaven. And the angels believe that the reason why is essentially that, you know, humanity has been moving around too much and they have to, they have to stop migrating. They have to stop changing. They have to remain sort of in a state of stasis. Um, much like the angels themselves do because the angels don't have human consciousness and they don't have free will in the same way and so they don't really change. And they want Prior to be the prophet of stasis, essentially. That's what the prophecy they want him to deliver. And um, he eventually refuses to do so. And he makes his way up to heaven so that he can um, uh, reject that prophecy. And, it, and it's a very interesting, I mean, you see Kushner in restaging uh, biblical parable, right? Of, right. Of Jacob and the angel. Jacob yeah. And the angel, wrestling with the angel, and in in each case, it's interesting to see what uh, humanity claims for mm-hmm. itself. Um, and here, right, it is the right to make errors and to move forward um, and to to not speak on behalf of a sort of uh, hegemonic stasis. Yeah, and you know, the other interesting thing is, of course, the new relevancy the play has gained. It's the right to migrate. You know, right. um, and Kushner said to us, you know, he's like, I, you know, the it wasn't I, an immigrant rights play. It wasn't an immigrant right. rights play, but you know, when he went to London to see rehearsals of the the new production, which is now in previews on Broadway, you know, he's like, oh, right, I, you know, there's a whole act of this play called the anti-migratory epistle, and there's an angel saying you must stop moving, and that has like really different valences uh, uh, in 2018 than it does in 1992. I wanted to, to, to touch on a part of Isaac's earlier answer, too, that something that is powerful for me about, about this book and about thinking about the play is, you know, I was someone who came of age as a teenager in, in the, the mid-90s, and obviously the closet still existed, but one of the things to read this book and to read the actors talk about it as, oh, you know, right, there was never a gay love story that ended without the death of at least one, if not both, of the characters. There, there was no depiction of... Uh, gays kissing at all and to think about that cultural change you know we we already live or I, I grew up in it already a post angels America in a funny way culturally and so to have people not that much older say effectively this was so radical I felt so uncomfortable with my parents seeing that whereas now I'm sure like parents see their children having homosexual kisses in, in high school plays, or at least I hope so. <laughs> I mean, they, and, there, there are some high schools that do Angels in America, if right. I remember correctly. And so, they and, probably cut the Central Park cruising scene. Uh, you know, it's high school. There's a, there's a place for everything. It's really interesting to be reading about a history that is about a time exactly coterminous with when one has lived, but when one wasn't really culturally aware. And then you're like, oh, right. When my eyes opened to culture, it was a culture that had been opened by in many ways this play and, mm-hmm. other, and other movements and that that to me is is one of the really interesting things about the book is is sort of um getting to relive that eye-opening through people who are slightly older who are acting it out as part of it yeah yeah totally and that was one of the interesting things about reporting it i mean i'm a few years older than you i'm, I'm 38 but you know uh uh and so my political awakening was because I was um, doing plays as like a professional actor as a kid in DC. I was like the kid in a musical, you know what I mean? And so like I was suddenly surrounded by openly gay men and um, I had two friends who died of AIDS actually in the in the 90s. Um, so I was meeting HIV positive people. I was meeting um, uh, gay men and, and, and becoming politicized through that experience of learning about this kind of oppression that just like made no sense to me, you know, uh, um, uh, and um, trying to kind of affect change in the way sex ed was taught in school and, you know, things like that. I don't want to claim that I was, I'm not Grants Francaruda, you know, joining ACT UP and becoming a member of the, the, the treatment act, uh, action group. I, so I don't want to make big claims for myself, but I'm just saying my political awakening was through gay rights and the AIDS crisis and absolutely seeing both parts of this play on Broadway um, was an aspect of that. This is funny. I'm hopeful for the angels. You said it's not, it's not as clear the angels don't change. The angels let Pryor not take on the mantle of profit. Yeah. So do you think the angels... I So I, I think, this, I think this, you might be... This gives me hope for the angels. I think the angels are back there up in San Francisco, you know. Well, the thing near San Francisco with uh, the ghost of Ethel Rosenberg and everyone playing cards, and I think they're like, all right, you know, God's gone. Let's let's do a little. 
Well, the angels in the play are um, supposed to be sort of latter-day Soviet bureaucrats, right? That's what the imagery is of what their, um, the the hall of the continental principalities, you know, where they're all speaking sort of weird, not gibberish, it, it, it has deep meaning, but they're speaking this sort of complicated, inscrutable language, and there's paper flying everywhere, and, you know, it is it is meant to in some ways be like, you know, uh, uh, late 80s Soviet bureaucrats sort of wondering, you know, ineffectually trying to figure out what the heck to do. Um, but I'm just saying, I think maybe there's glass in heaven. Maybe there's glass in heaven. I will say that, you know, Pryor's actual advice to the angels is that they should sue God for emotional abandonment. Right. He says, you know, if you can find God, sue him. Or, yeah, I don't have the actual script in front of me. Yeah, so yeah. that butchering that, but he says, you know, you should sue him. And in the, uh, Production of Angels, the last one before it went to Broadway at the Mark Taper Forum in Los Angeles, there was a monologue written for Roy Cohn where Roy Cohn is in hell and there's an Aleph, a glowing Aleph in front of him. And he's discussing with the Aleph how the Aleph's... uh, trial strategy should be right, and so, so it's clear. So, so, so Roy Cohn's God's defense, defense attorney. attorney, yeah, because the God is being sued, and um, they uh, did it at the taper. They they it had been in many versions of the script up through then, and then they they got to Broadway in previews, and you know um, George C. Wolf just really felt that it wasn't working. There's a section in our our book where he's like he's dead. Roy Cohn is dead. Just let him be dead. The man's had like five different endings in the play. Just like let him be dead. And Ron Liebman, who was playing Roy Cohn at the time, you know, said to them like, well, we'll make the play better if we cut it. And they said, yes. He's like, okay, fine, go ahead and cut it. And he said in the interview with me that, that he felt some regret about that, that he shouldn't have been so much of a boy scout because it's a great scene. So I do think that if you have that coda in the play, it's, it's never going to be in the play again. But if you had that coda in the play, then you do get a sense that the angels have changed because they're suing God, right? Like they have made a choice. Um, and But I think it, what how the angels respond to prior rejecting their prophecy, I think is left very open-ended in the play because what the play wants to do is get back to earth flash forward to the to 1990 and focus on the characters at bethesda fountain sort of arguing with one another and figuring out how to live together all the like the soviet stuff i find kind of really interesting so for obvious reasons because i'm an immigrant from the soviet union but have you read um, Kushner's play Slavs? No. See, what I would do, I, I'll, I'll, I'll lend you my copy of Slavs. Sure. So just a perestroika, when in its original form, in which it was 700 pages long and it took six, six to seven hours just to read, um, uh, perestroika used to, because it's a five-act play, and each act began with a curtain raiser with these ancient Bolsheviks sort of... Um, with antics ensuing amongst these ancient Bolsheviks. And um, all of those were cut except for the monologue that begins Perestroika, which is by um, uh, a character named Prelapsarianov, the oldest living Bolshevik, Bolshevik, who's blind and he sort of chastises the, the, the assembled people who are the audience um, about, you know, how can you move forward without a theory? Um, So Prelapsarianov, and these other Bolsheviks, um, Kushner took those cut scenes and he made them into the first five scenes of a new play called Slavs, which is about the fall of the Soviet Union, which is like a very strange, really, really funny uh, play. So if you want to look at some of what was in the original Perestroika, pick up that uh, that that play and read it. This really answers my question, because what I was going to ask was sort of like, you know, I, I don't know how much familiarity Kushner had with uh, the USSR and how much um, and how did the uh, the fall of the USSR I mean if you like in right the wall comes down in 1989 which is just a year after the play comes out um, the I mean by 1991 the the obviously like the Soviet Empire has dissolved so like how much did that um, how much did that dissolution how did that affect you know the perception of the play how did that affect like you know um, or, or did it did it not really matter? Did it just did it just end up being like a thing that happened somewhere over there? And like, because I imagine like you know most of the right most of the salient stuff has relatively little to do with uh, you know Soviet kitsch. But at the same time, right, that's kind of an important piece of what like Kushner is writing. And then a, a year or two years later, it's not there anymore. Right. Well, you know, I, I should say you know in, in eighty eight. 
Kushner's just writing the play. Like it, it hasn't been seen publicly by okay. anyone. So, you know, the the major sort of, and then there are semi-public workshops and stuff, you know, mm-hmm. in the ensuing years. So the the Berlin Wall has fallen before an audience okay. is really seeing this, the, it, it, before a real, you know, a, a real audience is seeing this play. Um, uh, and I would say that you see the effects of the, the fall of the Berlin Wall in sort of the play's dramaturgy in the second play in Perestroika. So when all those angels are gathered around in their heavenly Politburo, you know, and they're, they're talking, um, they're listening to a radio and the radio, well, has Chernobyl, has has the Chernobyl disaster on. So there's like little threads like that throughout or that, Antidiluvianovich Prelapsarianov gives the uh, the 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 first speech in Perestroika, or that the play is called Perestroika, right? So there's those little things in it. Um, that the the major idea is just that the world is cracking open and that it is changing, and that you can't stop that, right? There there were people who tried to stop the uh, Berlin Wall from falling. There were people who tried to stop the fall of the Soviet Union. You know that was a change uh, uh, that happened. I will also say, you know, like. Oscar Eustace, you know, there's a part where he talks in our book. It's very offhand, but he's like, I was at my mother's house in East Germany, right? Like Oscar Eustace had a deep actual connection to to, um, uh, European communism. And, you know, Tony Kushner's background is in Marxism as well. It's part of why they became friends so quickly. Um, And so there's a there's a there's theoretical ideas that I think help shape the play um, as well. And. the, the fall of the Berlin Wall absolutely affected this play's journey in that it's one of the many big changes, Sigrid's death or Sigrid getting sick and dying, you know, Oscar uh, Eustace breaking up with his girlfriend who was part of the company at the Eureka, the Berlin Wall falling, you know, you know, the, these are all these things, personal and um, uh, global, that affect this play's journey. There's a, a quote that you requote in in your book where... Uh, Kushner is asked if um, the only unforgivable sin is being an obedient Republican. Yeah, and he says something like, well, that would certainly qualify as an obedient sin. And that is comes from a uh, live talk that he did with Michael Cunningham that's collected in a really brilliant book called Conversations with Tony Kushner. That's just an anthology of Tony Kushner interviews. Um, so the, I guess the question is, do you think the play makes it an unforgivable sin to be an obedient Republican? In other words... Does Joe Pitt is who is Roy Cohn's protege in the play uh, is possibly one of the only unredeemed characters in the play, but but also, do you think that that just represents, in some ways, a um, you know maybe a correct, but the one place Kushner could even find empathy for Roy Cohn, but not for for you know basically uh, Jeff Flake. <laughs> Well, yeah, so let's talk about the character of Joe Pitt. Joe Pitt's a really fascinating character. He is a Mormon, uh, closeted, gay, Republican, lawyer. Um, he's a clerk for an appellate judge. And, and as far as I know, Jeff Flake is not a closeted gay, although I believe he's every one of those other things. The, his cl- the way he is closeted is different from the way Roy is closeted. Roy has this whole conversation about how um, homosexuality is actually about power and therefore he is a heterosexual man who who fucks guys, right? Um, uh, Joe, you know, in some ways talking out of the closet is almost putting it sort of vaguely because the truth of the matter is that, that Joe is just in this incredible kind of denial almost, right? He, there's this part of him and he's just walled it off. He knows it's, he sort of knows it's there, but he's walled it off so that he doesn't have to deal with it. And it's destroying him and it's destroying his wife, Harper, who's another main character in the play. And um, uh, over the course of the play, the walls around that part of himself begin to crumble and he gets into sort of his first real um, relationship. Uh, And he ends the play profoundly alone in a way the other characters aren't. I think that, um, so the actors who play Joe (laughs) would tell you, you know, we interviewed lots of, we have a chapter dedicated to each character in the play where we interview as many of the actors who played that character as we can get our hands on. So I would say there's a universal agreement amongst the actors who play Joe that Joe gets a a, a raw deal, that he is the left alone, that it's, it's, it's apparently very difficult to play Joe and to be left like that by the end of the play and that he's unredeemed and that the play is, is judging him. Um, 
I am not sure that that is true. It depends on um, uh, whether you uh, sort of where you get meaning from, right? Like, I think that it's absolutely important to this play that this is a play about change where someone does actually take the steps to lead a better, more authentic, truer life and does not necessarily end up better off at the end as a result of it. I think that's absolutely important to the play, having a complex, non-propagandistic view on its themes. Um, I also think that Joe starts off like so far back you know, on that that he's gone as far as he can by the end of the play, but for him to have gone any further would, I think, be kind of um, cheap. You know, at the same time, due to comments like that one that 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 Kushner made, or you know, some of the things he said to us in interviews, it is clear that to me that there is at least some kind of you know this guy doesn't get to get rewarded by the end of the play. But I do think that if he did, it would actually make the play less authentic to me. I think a lot of this also comes down to sort of, you know, the demands of art as, as you mentioned in the beginning, right? The, the art relies on like, like drama needs conflict. Right. And I think that it's always, and, and we were asking this question about, you know, whether some, would somebody write about Donald Trump the way they wrote about Roy, Roy Cohn or Richard Nixon. And, you know, I think the, the answer to my question then is tied up to the answer to my question that Jeremy asked just now, which is that like, People who are evil, but then also have like some kind of other interesting characteristics for, you know, they tend to, I'm not going to say they get judged on a sliding scale, but they also have this other aspect to them that is interesting to analyze. So they become interesting as subjects in and of themselves. Like, you know, Henry Kissinger is an extremely evil person, but like, he's also interesting as like a subject of analysis, right? Yeah, totally. Like, because, he's, because he he's, is Richard the third. Yeah. <laughs> because he's not, because he's not like this completely empty, vapid, like just vessel that just spews garbage, right? Not always the winter of our discontent. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty good. Make for killing of many Indonesians. <laughs> um, so, so people like, people like that, kind of right they get this they get this sort of mixed treatment where on the one hand it's like you condemn them as evil on the other hand you 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 analyze them because like what they did and what they thought was was interesting in in some way but like if you're just like this you know if you're just some functionary like yeah you're going to get a raw deal especially in art because there's like not that much to say about you and maybe it's a testament to you know not maybe it is a testament to like Kushner's skill that he turns this person like he gives this person like a genuinely like authentic life and an authentic ending that does not not necessarily like you know isn't necessarily cheap in some way but it but it does sort certainly like it is certainly harder I think if to take like somebody who just doesn't have a whole lot going on and turn them into like an interesting figure so actually maybe this is a good lesson if you are one of the 150 members of the house who is a republican who regrets Trump being president and will tell that to a Washington Post journalist, but will in no other way do anything. You will not be memorialized by a Pulitzer Prize winning play <laughs> yeah. unless you do something with your life. Yeah, that's that's one more. You're also definitely in our audience. Right, yeah. right. We know you're listening. <laughs> we know you. Change. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> one thing on AIDS that I wanted to say that I think is interesting in the book that, that you notice is, is right, the, the book comes out before the um, antiretroviral cocktails uh, became... You mean the play? The play, sorry. The play comes out uh, before those uh, cocktails changed, um, right, as, as you noted correctly, a, a fatal disease into a still sometimes fatal but more chronic and manageable disease from the field. That I think we're still learning about what it means for it to be chronic and manageable. I mean, I have a friend who runs a nonprofit that's dedicated strictly to senior citizens who are HIV positive, right? I mean, that is a that is not a community that necessarily like had that many people in it, you know, in the '90s, and now that's like a that's a growing group, right? And 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 that have uh, different health challenges, uh, yeah. Of course, right. The one thing that I actually wanted to say that is, that is a, a touchstone to the book, but um, or rather that it, that is that is parallel to the book, but, mm -hmm. no, but not in the book. I think one of the important things about normalizing. Um, a really truly like we don't have caste systems in the U.S. maybe, but but that were, uh, you know, a, a people who were untouchable in a in a very profoundly and, and deeply immoral way, um, and this is touched on by by many other artifacts of the AIDS crisis as well, and that we should think about is that the medical research that has gone into 
the antiretrovirals um, and in general antiviral therapies and therapies for AIDS patients has had tremendous impact on other diseases. And I think that that's actually maybe an undercovered um, story and, and something like our hepatitis C treatments now would not exist except for right. HIV treatments. They're actually um, anti-flu and anti-respiratory uh, virus uh, treatments that are in clinical trials that are directly related to uh, what uh, had come out of, of later stage uh, AIDS research. And I think that that's a, a, a real reminder that, um, you know, one of the things that ACT UP and many AIDS activists fought for, obviously, was in sort of refitting a lot of the um, research apparatus in this country to really respond to patients and also to make specific uh, in medical improvements um, that, that were vital to, mm -hmm. to ending the AIDS crisis. And the it really did pay tremendous dividends to everyone in this country who is is not gay and who didn't have AIDS. Or, or And, and so I think that that's um, one of these really important historical lessons, actually, about this period of time that, that people sometimes forget. Like the, 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 we are a community, and that, that, that medical research does spread on broadly. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the play takes place in 1986. It takes place before ACT UP is founded. Um, and, you know, part of what is going on in this play is sort of shining a light on that time, right? There's a part in the, there's, when, when Cohn gets his diagnosis that he has AIDS, his doctor, you know, that scene begins with his doctor saying sort of no one knows what causes it. You know, he listing all the things that we don't know about it. And, you know, reading um, David Francis' extraordinary book, uh, How to Survive a Plague, which I really recommend everyone read, which is sort of a social history of the medical parts of the, of the AIDS crisis. You know, we have lived, those of us who lived through the age of AIDS have lived through this very bizarre and unique moment in American history where there's a new plague. That plague, you know, spreads most rapidly in like the most hated sectors of society right you know no one knows what's causing it there's a whole theory when it was when uh, hiv was first spreading that maybe um an excess of semen like receiving an excess of semen somehow depressed your immune system and that's what was causing it i mean you know like there was all these sort of different theories before they knew it was a virus then they had to figure out how that virus worked and uh and you had a community that had to organize to have their humanity taken seriously and recognized. Um, Joe Mantello um, was a, uh, who played Lewis on Broadway, was what was called a buddy for gay men's health crisis. It's one of the first organizations that's trying to like help the people who have this disease in New York City, founded by, you know, co-founded by Larry Kramer, who also co-founded ACT UP. And um, uh, he talks about his experiences of, you know, part of his job was just to go to people's hospital rooms and bring them their food because the nurses, the hospital staff were allowed to leave the trays in the hallways outside their rooms. They did not have to like bring their food in them because no one wanted to touch them. I mean, they were literally untouchable. And so part of his job was just to treat people with a basic level of humanity and decency. And it's, it's important to remember that aspect of the AIDS crisis, that it wasn't just like people got purple blotches all over their body and then died, right? It was that, you know, you were, if you, particularly if you had Carposi sarcoma, you were like specifically marked. And you were not only marked as having this disease that everyone was terrified of, you were also marked whether you were or not as gay uh, or a heroin addict, right? And, and so that sort of double marking um, uh, uh, really was an aspect of what was so devastating about the disease. And there were calls from figures, you know, I got very angry the other night, and I, I probably shouldn't have gotten this angry, but a friend was sort of sharing witty anecdotes about Bill Buckley on his oh, Facebook page. And Bill Buckley said, I mean, among all of his terrible racist shit, but he said in the late 80s after he was supposedly reformed that we should tattoo uh, HIV-positive homosexuals uh, on their buttocks and HIV-positive uh, intravenous drug users on their arms. Right. And, you know, literalizing, uh, you know, Gore Vidal's insult of him as a crypto-Nazi. Yeah. You know, he's like, no, 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 I'm just a Nazi. But it's also important, where was that published? It was published in the New York fucking Times. So if you want to talk about, like, how galling it was, how normalized the 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 
bigotry was towards homosexuals, towards intravenous drug users, towards people with AIDS, you know, like you could write that and you could get it in the goddamn New York Times, it, right? In the New York Times where they, they wouldn't allow the obituaries to publish the names of the people's lovers when they died. So it seemed like they died completely alone or where they weren't allowed, they, uh, Abe, um, uh, he's played by Abe Rosenthal, Abe right? Rosenthal is played by um, uh, what's his face from a serious man in the post um, uh, you know Abe Rosenthal wouldn't let them use the word gay they had to use sort of the clinical term homosexual you know the the, the that there the the discourse <laughs> the TM the the discourse around this stuff was really really terrible and one of the things that people organized to change was that was that discourse uh, I had I had one question which you know maybe is uh, so the question's short. The answer could be long, but uh, just give me your your quick thoughts on. So, Angel in, Angels in America is, I think, by any standard that you would care to uh, imagine, is an epic play. And I'm wondering, do you think it's possible on other themes, on in other contexts, to have another Angels in America, like in 2018, 20 or later, whatever? Like, is Angels in America possible anymore? I think that we've lately found this taste for these kind of, you know, quote unquote, durational works, right? Where you go to a theater for four to 72 hours and and you see like a big thing. I mean, Taylor Mack has a 24 hour long show. Mike Daisy did a 24 hour long show. Um, People are regularly doing sort of six hour trilogies of plays that you can see all at once. Uh, Coast of Utopia, the, the Tom Stoppard trilogy was nine hours. So in terms of the actual running time, I actually think our, our taste for things of this size has expanded. And actually, that is another impact that Angels in America had. In terms of um, a, a, a work of theater that has this much impact on the culture and that's part of the broader conversation, I mean, we saw that recently with Hamilton. Hamilton is a much more conservative work. I mean, I, I in that I think there's a lot of radicalism in Angels in America and Hamilton's like fairly liberal. You know what I mean? But it's a, it's a, it's a much more... But Dick Cheney liked Hamilton and Dan Quayle sure shit wasn't going to Angels. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, uh, but, uh, and I very much like Hamilton, but I'm just saying, you know, Hamilton was a similar eruption into our culture where people were debating its themes and, uh, you know, et cetera and so forth. Um, so I want to believe um, that other Angels in Americas are still possible. And my hope is, is that there's some, you know, playwright in their early 30s who is sitting down to write the angels of the Trump era. Until that happens, we are lucky to have Angels in America back on Broadway, um, uh, you know, with, to, to speak to our current moment. All right. Well, thank you very much for being with us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me on to talk about the book. Yeah, thanks for uh, coming. It's uh, It's been a really wonderful, uh, wonderful experience to have you. Awesome. Um, uh, as as our listeners may have noted, uh, we had a little bit of a, another gap in uh, the programming, uh, but I think we're going to try to stick to more of like a monthly schedule rather than a bi-weekly. So programmatic note for all you listeners there. Um, and yeah, join us join us next time after uh, a few more uh, dozen Russians have been indicted by the Mueller investigation. Thanks, Thanks for listening.